Alrighty. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Isn't that what's happening tomorrow? Or is it Memorial Day? Or I don't know. I'm in a funk. I'm in a fog. I'm in a daze. I'm in a haze. No, I'm aware. So I'm, I'm aware temporally, roughly speaking, of where I am and what's going on. So I just like to confuse people because then they underestimate my tenacity. Hello, Richard. Hey. So are you following this Colorado thing? I haven't looked. I haven't read much, but I read a little bit on it. Yeah, I've been following it. Um, you know, I always. It's been pretty unproductive for me because I've been planning to finish a stupid piece I have been working on and did a bunch of reporting for, it, but I get just sucked into these mass shootings. I don't know why. I'm just. Uh, it's always been that way for me. I just you know, whether I like it or not, I feel somehow pulled into all the various you know dimensions of the discourse around mass shootings and they are kind of you know let's face it sort of viscerally almost perversely so fascinating uh, as just uh, you know social phenomena um but yeah there there are some components to this particular one in Colorado and there's you know there was actually just another one last night uh in Virginia Chesapeake Virginia at the Walmart which I guess is probably not going to be quite as fraught uh, but, you know, similar, uh, actually, I think even more people were killed in this one in Virginia, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, I guess I was kind of ensnared into following the Colorado thing pretty closely because, you know, after a while, I guess this is one of the benefits of aging and having been a consumer of media from a critical standpoint now for over a decade that you see these patterns recurring in terms of how mass shootings are covered and uh, reacted to by the, the political media class. And, you know, it was just, it couldn't have been more predictable that there was this parade instantaneously of, you know, almost exclusively Democratic elected officials, Congress and so forth, who were just making these assertions about the incident in Colorado Springs as if they knew, as if, as if they had personally acquired evidence as to the motive of the suspected assailant, as to what external sort of uh, exogenous forces in the political ether must have influenced the assailant to commit the crime. And they were just kind of reflexively doing this sort of narrative gamesmanship where they're trying to use it to get a one up on Republicans. I mean it's it's almost it's too it's almost too tedious to even re, uh, restate because like it's the most predictable thing in the world. But even so, I do think it's actually pretty important despite the tedium or to get on record or to document just the sheer brazenness of some of these elected officials where they are just so blasé about making factual assertions for which they just don't have any evidence at all um, and making factual assertions that are extremely incendiary, that provoke an emotionalistic reaction in the populace 
and they just don't care or they're oblivious or they're opportunistic. You know, it's probably unseemly, some unseemly combination of them, those uh, factors. And, you know, it's just uh, crazy. So let me just give you one example that I think is sort of illustrative. This is um, from Sunday afternoon. So the afternoon of the 20th, the shooting occurred you know, early in the morning or around midnight the night before. And here's the, you know, the big uh, drumroll please statement from a congresswoman who I'm sure most people wouldn't know or wouldn't have any reason to know. But, you know, because I'm sort of granularly uh, into these things, I, I, I know who she is. I know what her sort of general political disposition is. So this statement didn't surprise me, but it's worth sort of just documenting for the record. So she says, this is Madeline Dean, congresswoman from... Pennsylvania, so like you know, uh, Montgomery County, pretty affluent suburban district that Democrats quote unquote flip 2018. She was reelected this year. She says, sickened and heartbroken about the hate driven attack at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. Systemic gun violence, transphobia, and homophobia continue to plague our society. People living their truth have a right to be, be and feel safe. We must speak out and legislate for them. Okay, so. Factual assertion number one is, quote, hate-driven attack. She just did not know, nor did anyone, nor did even the local investigators who were on the scene actively culling potential evidence. Even they, the police chief, the district attorney, the, you know, the, even the, the mayor, they were declining explicitly to make an assertion about motive as to this attack, she's asserting a motive here in her tweet because I don't know, maybe out in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, Congresswoman woman Madeline Dean was able to acquire dispositive evidence about the motive of a mass shooter in Colorado Springs. I mean, it, it's ludicrous. Nobody even thinks it odd because, of course, maybe this is getting redundant for me to even say, but it furthers a certain politically advantageous narrative that most of the media would like to promote, including, and, you know, the media in the main tends to be a pretty reliable adjunct of the Democratic Party. So this is not even like perceived as potentially out of bounds or potentially um, concerning for a congressman to just make a bold factual assertion that the, uh, this crime was, quote, hate-driven. Now, because everyone just assumes that it can be inferred, right? It can be inferred that it's hate-driven because we know that the attack occurred at an LGBT club. Now, a couple issues with that. Yeah, this was an LGBT-focused club in Colorado Springs, as I understand it. But the idea of gay, gay culture and non-gay culture having this, you know, hard barrier nowadays is, like, kind of ridiculous, and it's not as though gay clubs always serve a 100% gay or LGBT clientele. I mean, there's all this commingling now more than ever. So that's one thing. Um, but the, the fundamental fallacy that is widely shared across the media, across the you know, activist kind of commentariat, and across the political class, as exemplified by Congresswoman Dean here, is that you can just automatically infer that by dint of the location that the attack occurred in, a motive is evident, right? That we know it would have had to have been an LGBT hate crime. Well, and I'll wrap up. I don't want to do a 
big rant uh, monologue, but even just very recent history should tell anybody who's like a, even just a conscientious citizen, someone who actually is interested in empirical reality and fact rather than, you know, bloviation and nonsense, uh, political kind of gamesmanship, that we have multiple examples of, in the very recent past, mass shootings or mass casualty incidents occurring, a motive being ascribed to that incident or ascribed to the assailant in that incident reflexively based on whatever the political factors were at the time. And then upon acquisition of further evidence, those initial assumptions are just obliterated and shown to have been radically unfounded. And most of the time you can actually tell that the initial assumptions made are unfounded contemporaneously because Look, I mean, everything, the, the evidence is out there in the record. You can, we have a, the ability now in this media environment to go to the primary sources, to look at what the local officials are saying, to look at what court documents are being filed, etc. So it's not as though Madeline Dean has this, you know, secret reservoir of, you know, law enforcement insight in El Paso County, Colorado that she can singularly draw from. No, she's looking at what everybody else is looking at, and she's asserting falsely that she knows the motive, and she knows it's, quote, hate-driven, and she's just saying that. Um, well, lots of people said pretty much exactly the same thing. I don't know if you remember this. After the series of spree killings in the Atlanta area in March of 2021, where spas that were largely run by uh, Asian women, I think they were Korean, um, were shot up by this you know, guy with a gun. Probably, I think he was also 21. And uh, because there was an outsized share of victims who were Asian, everybody immediately proclaimed, and I'm saying everybody in that, you know, the nonprofit activist sector, Democratic Party politicians, you know, media consensus attitudes all proclaimed that it was obviously an anti-Asian hate crime and they wove it into the larger narrative around supposedly this surge of virulent anti-Asian hate. They tied it in with Trump. They tied it in with COVID. They tied it in with everything that was convenient or expedient politically at that time. And it was just total bollocks to use an English term that I'm getting increasingly fond of. They, the DA of Cherokee County, Georgia, who has actually prosecuting, who prosecuted the assailant, did you know, reported doing copious investigation every which way of the potential motive yeah. of the assailant, and, and there was no evidence for it. You can go back to the 2016 Pulse shooting in Orlando. Everybody assumed that was an LGBT hate crime as well. Hillary Clinton screamed it from the top of her lungs right away. It was in the middle of the campaign that year. And you could even go back, and this is a rabbit hole to go down. I'm not sure if I even recommend it, but look at the Matthew Shepard thing, 1999, where there was this kind of like mythical version of it that was presented to the public about how it was this, this barbaric anti-gay motivated crime that was just out of nowhere was just sheer animus on the part of those assailants not true at all if you actually look at the details and even some of the contemporaneous reporters that was actually good so yeah that's why i was drawn in yeah (laughs) i mean yeah for all this you know supposed sort of sophistication of the left it's amazing 
the extent to which they're, you know, like, it, it's like, even if they were right on all these cases and they tend to be wrong more often than they're right, um, like, it doesn't tell you anything, right? They're just running with anecdotes. Um, and the anecdotes aren't even true, right? But it's amazing the extent to which sort of the worldview is shaped by, like, these, you know, one-off events. Like, oh, there's going to be a hate crime. There's going to be, like, a, a racist crime, like, somewhere in the country. Uh, there's going to be a police shooting at some point. I mean, the fact that they're, they have, they get it wrong so often is, like, an indication that it's actually not that common, right? They, there's more of a demand for it than there is a supply. So, I mean, the politicians, I mean, it's not even... You know, it's not even, I mean, worth, I mean, it's not even worth mentioning at this point. I expect it. I mean, what's interesting about this case is um, this Ben Collins guy, you, I assume you know him, right? He, he sort of popped up recently. He's, he's a NBC. Well, he's been, he's been around. I, he's been around for a while. I mean, he was, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to resurface old, uh, annoyances well, did he, but did he just he, get on did he just get hired by NBC or something I haven't yeah yeah he was at the Daily Beast I think for a while uh and then I think probably got hired from the Daily Beast at, at NBC News to be like their flagship misinformation correspondent or whatever yeah so I mean I didn't start noticing him until recently um and you know it's 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 sort of encouraging because there's been some pushback from not just from conservatives like Nate Silver has been fighting with this guy and yeah, then, uh, Jesse Signal has been attacking him um, for, you know, this weird stuff that he's saying about this this case. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's po- like, I don't know if that changes. Like, I think people like this are going to have to be shamed. I mean, these are just conservative voices, like, saying that there's something wrong with this guy, that these misinformation people, you know, are attempt to, you know, spread the misinformation. Um, and they tend to, you know, not be very just just not very careful actors in the kinds of things that they say. So that's interesting. So that's interesting. I mean, this guy, uh, you know, so like, uh, but in this case, it appear, I don't know. Like, what have you seen about the shooter? I mean, is, is the, does the narrative happen to be true in this case? Well, well first, uh, just to address one aspect of what you said, the utter, abandonment of any empirical standards in evaluating events like these doesn't even make sense from the standpoint of a partisan Democrat or a partisan, you know, just Democratic Party loyalist who out of just sheer political bloodlust craves the opportunity to pin blame on Republicans for a mass casualty event. Even if that's just your base desire and that's what you're motivated by, I mean, chances are you're not going to have to wait so very long for that to actually happen because it does happen on occasion, right? I mean, we have instances where a mass shooting occurs, like Buffalo in May of this year, where the shooter instantly puts out a manifesto on the internet where he actually goes so far to take the unusual step of self-describing himself as a fascist. So not having somebody else pejoratively labeled the fascist, but he actually espoused that as his self-described uh, uh, belief. And, you know, the guy was you know, demonstrably and by his own clear-cut writing in a public document, he was an extreme rightist of some stripe, right? So that does happen. That happened in, with the El Paso shooting at a Walmart in 2019. Uh, the, 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 that kind of stuff does occur on occasion. So why why then do you have to leap at every conceivable opportunity, regardless of the evidence, to make sure that it 
you could twist it into one particular narrative when it's not even worth the effort because all you have to do is probably wait like a month or two and then you can get your dopamine hit because there'll probably be some other event. But yeah, um, uh, on Ben Collins, he did something that was incredible. Okay, so this is a guy who's in this new sort of clique of journalists post-2016. Really, they kind of came to fruition around COVID actually because you know that was a whole lot of misinformation that had to be policed. And, you know, used against Trump and blah, blah, blah. Um, where, you know, they're hyper adamant about the need to stringently regulate the Internet. You know, Ben Collins was talking about how, you know, we don't even know if the elections this year are going to be safe because Elon Musk took over Twitter. It's, he's always talking about how, you know, uh, misinformation on the Internet is like the m- most profound threat that humanity has ever faced and it's only getting worse like it's like a slow moving tsunami it's gonna just crush us um and so he get last night did something i mean yesterday did something just amazing and i actually just tweet i don't usually do the, the thing on twitter where like i'm just trying to proactively sort of like semi antagonize someone to get them to respond but i actually did do that with him just now, or like an hour or so ago, because I saw this clip of him that was, you know, mega viral yesterday. He's on, I think it was Morning Joe. He's, he's, it's almost like he did a, he had his own like melodramatic Walter Cronkite moment where he's like, you know, uh, broke the, the, um, the fourth wall and was like addressing a pro, uh, you know, this, uh, incredibly pressing moral issue. And the moral issue was about how, like, he had this deep personal investment in, reporting on, you know, right-wing misinformation and hate and so forth and trans, anti-trans stuff. Uh, because if he didn't, then he's like, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, relinquishing his responsibility to these victims in, that are lying dead in Colorado Springs. And so there, there were all kinds of reasons why his he was just totally full of shit in his little Michael, can I play spiel. it? I, I found it on Twitter. Can I play it? Yeah, yeah, let's people, play it. Let's and play let, it. People, let people listen on here, too. I'll play it on my phone. You can hear it, right? Uh, I can't hear it. I can pull it up. Okay, pull it up, and if you could play. Or I, could yeah, yeah. Do it on, I could do it on my computer, and then... Um... Uh, I, I, I can get it really quickly. Just give me one second. Okay, because it actually, it, it might not work for you if it doesn't work for me, because maybe you can't do Twitter and call in at the same time. But if I go to my computer uh, and play it, it should be okay. Okay, here we go. I do want to say, though, um, am I doing something wrong here? Here are some headlines that I wrote the last six months. Fueled by Internet's far-right machine, anti-LGBTQ threats shut down trans rights and drag events. Remember, uh, there was a drag event happening in Colorado. Anti-trans stalkers at Kiwi Farms, which is an anti-trans website that stalks people, are chasing one victim around the world. Their list of targets is growing. That was a couple months ago. Doctors under threat from far-right activists for providing trans care. Boston Children's Hospital faces bomb threat after right-wing harassment campaign. There were three of those bomb threats. FBI charges Massachusetts women with Boston Children's Hospital bomb threats, so they found one of the people. At least 20 Republican politicians have claimed that schools are making accommodations for students who identify as cats. That was before. Um, <laughs> here, are some, here are three more from my colleagues in the last uh, three weeks. As election nears, some conservative groups have ramped up anti-trans campaign ads. 
Far-right figures appear to be testing Twitter's boundaries for anti-LGBTQ speech. Oh, no, GOP uh, senator boundaries. targets TikTok influencer with anti-transgender taunts. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> what could I have done different? Seriously, as reporters, what can we do different? Because there are five dead people in a strip mall, because that was the only place they felt safe as gay or trans people strip in this mall. town in Colorado Springs. And... Yeah, the, the the club was sort of in like a strip mall type area. Okay. Which, I mean, it's not very clear if you don't know that based on what he said, but there, I'll give you the added context so he doesn't sound like a total idiot. I am trying to thread this needle here. I'm trying to say that this is happening. This targeted stuff has real life impacts. They say on the internet it has real life impacts. And I'm going to fail, by the way. I'm going to, you know, freak out because it's happening. Because I wake, I wake up and I see... By the way, you can't. Uh, maybe you can't quite tell if you're only listening, but he's like pretty visibly trying to like hold back tears at this uh, point. That there are five dead bodies, but I think we have to have a come to Jesus moment here. Uh, as reporters, are we more afraid of being on Breitbart for saying that trans people deserve to be alive, <laughs> or are we more afraid of the dead people? Because I'm more afraid of the dead people. I don't want. I don't want to wake up on a Sunday and see that all of these headlines came to fruition. Okay, so he's he's the sage who is you know uh, presciently warning all of us that um, his his headlines are predicting the future or something, and we all need to get on board with his like journalistic yeah, philosophy, or else there's going to be mass trans genocide. Yeah, there's something very disturbing. I mean, about this NBC so misinformation beat. They also have that brandy brandy woman. Um, you know, it's it's strange. The only place they felt comfortable, like yeah, I mean, Jesse Sidney wrote about this today about how it like it's like just you know it's just completely made up. You know, it's just it's just based on nothing. Right. Um, I think I, I mean I did a I did a thread on that in the middle of the night last night. So I wonder if that if he saw my thread and did a, his post based on that. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a begrudging Jesse yeah. single but yeah I saw that same thing and you know because I, I listened to it I listened to that monologue and I heard this particular quote I'll just repeat it here this is Ben Collins quote there are five dead people in a strip mall because that was the only place they felt safe as gay or trans people now he has no they're dead yes yes it's just, it's he just has made no, up but he not only that he doesn't not only yeah. well right but but not only that it was already publicly revealed, publicly disseminated by the time he did the spiel yesterday that one of the victims was not gay. Like the family put out a statement through the local TV network in Colorado Springs. The family of it was a 22 year old guy, had never been to this club before, went with his girlfriend on a Saturday night because the girlfriend's parents had a friend who was like having a little birthday celebration. So the guy goes with the girlfriend to the club. For you know, for the first time, and the family puts out a statement saying, uh, "Quote: Here's a quote from the statement from the family." Okay, the guy's name is Raymond Green Vance. The 22-year-old had never been to that club, nightclub before, and although he is supportive of the LGBTQ community, he himself is not a member of it. He was there with his girlfriend. Okay, and you know the army guy who went viral about having tackled the shooter. Um, that was the father of this guy's girlfriend. Um, and so he's dead. He's a straight guy. Never been there before to this club. And yet Ben Collins, who is supposedly, you know, the watchdog 
for misinformation being um, pervade throughout the media ecosystem, he just makes something up about a deceased mass shooting victim. I mean, it's amazing. And yeah. nobody, nobody really objects. I mean, some people do on the periphery, right? But there's never going to be like this onslaught of, of condemnation of Ben Collins because, you know, again, it's all in service of one narrative that's favorably looked upon by, you know, the centers of power in the, in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy, he's, uh, he's, he is, he's, first said he's non-binary, and people are saying now that this is made up. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. So last night, uh, there was a court filing, uh, the public defenders in Colorado Springs filed, you know, uh, submitted a petition to the court for, uh, you know, requesting that their client, because this guy, this guy seems almost indigent. I don't think he has any resources at all. Um, that he identifies as non-binary, uses they/them pronouns, and goes by you know, the um, MX instead of you know Mister or Mrs. Yeah. Um, and that's what he wishes to be called by. And yeah, I mean, there are all these kind of theories about how you know it's it's <laughs> it's, tr- it's trolling, or it's some elaborate scheme. I mean, who knows? I don't know one way or another. Uh, but at the very least, okay, this is this goes to show it's ambiguous yeah we don't know right now it's right? ambiguous and those all those initial descriptions of motive and total certainty about what the nature of this event were was were totally idiotic i mean even if okay and here's the thing even if it even if uh, as we're on calling right now it comes out that it was just a quintessential anti-lgbt motivated hate crime and all those predictions were right it still would have been the case that there was no evidence for those claims, okay? And so when there are just this overabundance of evidence-free claims being spouted from every direction, I don't know, I think people who are just responsible consumers of media and people who are in the media ought to be more cognizant of it, but they just totally ignore it when it doesn't, you know, uh, run up against some of their, you know, preferred political assumptions. Yeah, yeah, it's very... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Is this going to go on forever? Are we just going to have these? Yes, it is. Everything is going to like. There's going to be a crime, and then they're going to all freak out, and then it's all going to be fake, and then we're just going to like, you know, just go back to way to do it the next time. I mean, it's really, it's depressing. It's depressing that this is like the news cycle. Yeah, and you know, intertwining the trans issue with the mass shooting is like the worst possible formula for just the most maddening news yeah, cycle. the trans thing can... is amazing. I mean, the trans thing is everywhere. The trans thing, you see the, 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 the trans uh, guy who was uh, uh, who was uh, fired from Twitter uh, for the, uh, was doing something on, uh, uh, was doing some kind of misinformation, was uh, like overseeing the uh, uh, you know, the sort of censorship apparatus. Did you see this? Uh, no, I guess I missed that. <laughs> what, was what happened with that? It's a trans male to female um who yeah this person was on cbs um there was a clip and they were on something else too um some other kind of tv cnn yeah cnn and yeah it's basically you know it's like yeah trans is having a trans is having a moment trans really is the the thing right now yeah well let's get to trans in a minute but first because they go you you went to a very prestigious law school i'm I'm always in awe of you and so i'm sort of curious i'm sort of curious like what is your overall take on hate crime statutes such as it could be generalized because 
Uh, it, it, there's this clamor, predictably, for this guy to be charged sort of prima facie with a hate crime merely by dint of where the shooting occurred, right? So nothing, according to people who are screaming for this, nothing else need be proven. It was the same with the um, Asian spa shootings in Georgia where there was a serious line of argument put forward by serious, you know, I'm saying quote-unquote serious or serious with a capital S, actors like the ADL had this whole campaign going on in their like southern division to lobby the district attorney of Cherokee County to charge that assailant with hate crimes. And you can look at the quote that the, this person gave, who's like a vice president of the ADL. She, she was claiming that, it, that the, it was already sufficiently established that the hate crime statute of Georgia was applicable because merely of where the shootings occurred and the, and the disproportionate share of Asians who were killed, even though there was like a white guy, a white woman killed. There was like a black guy who was there. There was a Hispanic guy who was there. So it was like, I think it was like six of nine victims or something were Asian. And that was enough to charge an anti-Asian hate crime, according to a very robust school of thought. Now, the, that wasn't actually eventually, it wasn't ultimately charged by the DA. And she said that there was not, simply was not evidence that the assailant had ever expressed anti-Asian animus or had that as a motive. Um, But, and and so it's very weird. Like it's like somebody shoots like 15 people and it's like, Oh, go charge him with a hate crime. Like it's, uh, uh, like, it's like, it's going to make it worse for them. Um, you know, uh, so it's, uh, um, uh, so it's like, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's silly because it's, um, uh, because it's like, it doesn't, it's not going to add anything. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. I have to, uh, just move something right here. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, and, 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 and so, yeah, these things were, I mean, they were, uh, they were, uh, controversial. I mean, when it first came out, I think they were actually litigated whether they were unconstitutional, uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's sort of just, it's, it's sort of, you're going into people's, uh, uh, sort of minds and trying to, you know, trying to, you know, a- amplify it based on some kind of political or social uh, opinion. Thought uh, crime. It's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a propaganda thing. It's like, it's a, people really do seem to care. Like people are like getting mad if something is not charged as a hate crime. Like it's like, it makes a big deal. So I guess people just like the statement. So yeah, I don't like the concept. I think people understand, you know, people, it doesn't make anyone safer or deter crime in any special way. Right. All it does is basically, you know, gives this label to to set off these moral panics. Yeah, actually, the Matthew Shepard case spurred an acceleration in the adoption of hate crime statutes in in various states because Wyoming was one of the uh, few remaining states that didn't have a hate crime law. That's where the Matthew Shepard, you know, killing happened. Actually, Wyoming is still one of only three states that doesn't have a hate crime statute, but because of the, you know, revulsion to that and the outrage that the, the uh, perpetrators could not be charged with a hate crime, you saw kind of a, the pace pick up in other states adopting it, you know, around like 1999 when uh, 2000 or so and then onward. Um, but yeah, you're, it, it, these are litigated. I think, I don't know if they've ever been litigated on a, 
uh, on a federal level in terms of you know something that could potentially go to the Supreme Court or not. But there's definitely always ongoing litigation about the constitutionality, at least on a state level. Like I think uh, in Pennsylvania, I was reading earlier today, the Supreme Court actually struck down the hate crime sta- statute at one point, and then the legislature passed another version of it. So Pennsylvania does have a hate crime statute. Um, and it's, it's, it's if you look at some of the protected categories now that fall under uh, hate crime provi- uh, statutes in various jurisdictions, I mean, they're, they're incredible. Actually, uh, I'm going to give you a pop quiz here, okay? Mm. And if you get this, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll, I'll kiss your ass or something. Um, what, there's one state, uh, one state plus Washington, D.C., okay? So of those 51 jurisdictions, there is one jurisdiction that has as a protected category under its hate crime statute, uh, membership in the U.S. military. Specific now, some some places have just kind of armed services or uh, as as part of their hate crime statute in terms of protected categories. But there's one state that spe- specifies U.S. military service as a protected category. Now, which state? Which state do you think that is? I'll say just for fun, South Carolina. It's Vermont. <laughs> okay. Yeah, some of this stuff is random. Yeah, what are the options? It's totally random. I thought you I thought you were yeah, I thought it would be some kind of red stage, you're right. Yeah, so like here here are the protected categories in Washington DC, okay, under the hate crime statute. Race, color, religion, national origin, sex, age, marital status, personal appearance. Interesting. Sexual mm-hmm. orientation, gender identity or expression, family responsibility, homelessness, mm-hmm. physical disability, Matriculation and politic political affiliation, and even I mean there are, there are weird ones that you wouldn't expect. Here's here's uh, Utah, okay? Age, ancestry, maybe a Mormon thing. I don't know. Um, disability, ethnicity, familial status, gender identity, homelessness, marital status, matriculation, national origin, political expression, race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, military service, status as an emergency responder law enforcement officer, correctional officer, special function officer, or any other peace officer. So you can, in Utah, you can, can be, you can get a sentencing enhancement for a hate crime against a correctional officer, like a prison guard. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's wild. And, and another thing that's interesting, though, okay, so I guess here's the main thing I wanted to put to you about the hate crime statutes, right? Because there's, yeah, I mean, they used to be more controversial than they are. Now they're kind of, quote, normalized, I guess. But... The DA in Cherokee County, Georgia, after that uh, spree killing with the Asians, she said she went out of her way to clarify that even if she could have found evidence that there was bias, like racial bias in the motive of the perpetrator, it wouldn't have actually – it wouldn't have added a single day to his sentencing. Like it wouldn't have actually – Increase his punishment at all. It would have been a purely symbolic addition. And the DA in El Paso County, Colorado, in his public statement since the shooting this weekend, he said the exact same thing. He's saying, look, this suspect is already going to be charged with the highest level felonies available in Colorado because, you know, because he committed murder. Um, And so even if there were evidence and he's leaving open the possibility that there may still be evidence for it. But even if he does find it, it still would not add any additional enhancement to the guy's ultimate 
sentence. So it's 100%, it's almost always seemingly, at least in these more high-profile cases that have people clamoring for hate crime to be charged, it's always just symbolic. There's actually no practical impact in terms of the, the punishment imposed on the perpetrator. It's all about like giving yeah. psychic gratification to yeah. people who want to feel like the state is recognizing their, you know, their, their angst or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, yeah, I think we've sort of run this thing into the ground. Do you want to move? Do you want to talk about Russia and Ukraine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your, uh, latest, uh, take? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the big news is that, have you seen the stories on the electrical grid in Ukraine, like the development of the last day or so? Yeah. 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 I, I, I actually didn't, I mean, it's weird. You think I, this would have been a bigger headline, but I just read a Wall Street Journal thing uh, this afternoon or evening where they're saying that the missiles, the barrage of missile strikes today was one of or uh, even the most intense barrage since the beginning of the war. Or and, and they said the same thing I thought last yeah, week. Yeah, I so apparently they're in, apparently they're in, apparently these missile strike barrages are intensifying and Russia's, you know, uh, uh, supply depot is not actually exhausted, which, which is, you know, claimed every week, it seems, by like, you know, it's usually sourced to British intelligence. Yeah, so this is, yeah, that's right. I mean, people were saying that they must be running out, you know, they, and there's like some clues that sort of make sense that they're using like anti- Well, they said, they said that in March. Yeah, but yeah, and they're, you know, they have some clues like the anti-missiles are, you know, are, they're using anti-missiles to strike off offensively. They're, you know, stuff like that seems makes it seem uh, credible. But you're you're right, and you know, I don't know the technical, I don't know the technicalities of this, but the supposedly the thing that was supposed to you know hold them back from these missiles was like you know semiconductors and chips. But I guess that stuff is sort of fungible because there was all these reports that they're like they were importing more washing machines from like Armenia and like Kazakhstan, like from Europe through these like. Uh, uh, like these uh, neighboring countries. Uh, so, like, you know, apparently there's a way to get around this. Uh, so this is, I mean, this is the humanitarian catastrophe for Ukraine. I mean, the winter is going to be really, really bad. I don't know if it's going to affect the battlefield. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really, I mean, this is going in a bad direction as far as sort of the humanitarian situation. Yeah, so here's, this is from uh, Wall Street Journal article today. Um, and this is this is what stood out to me most when I was just reading sort of the rundown of what happened today. Uh, here's what the Wall Street Journal reports: In Lviv, in western Ukraine, the entire city was without electricity, and trams were halted. Uh, Ukraine officials said power had also been cut in the cities of Odessa, Dnipro, and Kamilnitsky. I'm gonna, I butchered that, but the the Lviv thing stood out to me because. You know, there have been some strikes in and around Lviv here and there, and they've actually sort of picked up in, their, in frequency, I think, more recently. But by and large, from the since this war started, you know, Lviv and Western Ukraine has basically been seen as like a refuge, right? I mean, that's where Ukraine, when it evacuates people from like the east and the south, that's where they send them to. Um, that's where all the media basically congregated to get their briefings from the defense ministry early on. Like that was seen as almost like, you know, the place where the war wasn't happening, right? Yeah. And so, for if 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 Lviv got so, uh, you know, heavily hit that its entire electrical grid is out, and that's pretty that's uh, pretty jarring. 
Yeah, and you know we're not getting. It's like you know, sort of cheerleading for Ukraine. Like when you don't hear about like the battlefield casualties. A, I'm not hearing much about civilian suffering. It must be absolutely massive, right? I mean, apparently no. I mean, there's there's not much reporting on this right now. Let's see, temperature in uh, Kiev is. Uh, you know, it's uh, 31. I assumed it would have been worse than that, but it'll be 25 in a in a week, and you know, probably it's going to get colder as time goes on. Uh, but yeah, this is this must be uh, 31 freezing. I'm in California. I don't know what 31 feels like anymore. Is 30, 30, <laughs> 30, 31. I mean, you would you die in 31? No, right? It's not that bad, right? No, you'll. Uh, well, it would be a shock to the system if you're in Southern California, but I think. That, it, that's Ukraine, within that's within like sort of that's within like a fairly normal range of cold. Like it would have to be, I don't know, ten twenty degrees. And it's thirty one. Would you 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 wouldn't free? You'd need a jacket, right? You need a sweater and a jacket. Yeah, you'd have to you know have blankets and stuff. It, you, and you'd be cold, but it wouldn't. I don't. I mean, at least maybe for elderly people, it could be a problem or something, or you know, people with you know, whatever issue. But I think for the average person, it's going to be uncomfortable, and you're probably going to be cold, but. Yeah, um, you well, know for, you, can for, you, you, you can manage it. Yeah, I imagine for the elderly, it's probably. But you know, in but. in January, it probably gonna it probably is gonna get you know yeah arctically cold, and so well, I don't know. yeah, here it says twenty five. It's gonna be twenty five high for twenty five next week. Yeah, thirty one is the um, yeah. It's, 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 they say next Saturday it's gonna be you know it's gonna get to nineteen you know Friday Saturday of next week. So yeah, I mean it's obviously gonna get worse. This is not. Uh, this is not the worst of it. And it's like, you know, it's so sad because like two people got killed in Poland and there were people like, everyone's like, oh, what an escalation. Like, but this doesn't, you know, this doesn't cause any kind of sense of urgency uh, to try to find a way to end the war, right? It's just like war civilians are suffering in Ukraine. Um, and it's just, it's just sad. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to affect the battlefield. Probably not. It's probably just destruction for, for no good reason because Russia has no other sort of, you know, idea what to do, but it's it's still just a terrible situation. Well, because the Ukraine officials themselves and like the, you know the mover the, the the everybody who seems to have a platform in Ukraine, they're not citing the humanitarian toll at this point as reason why there should be a cessation to hostilities brought about. Right? I mean, they if anything, they cite it as extra incentive for barreling forward with you know an even intenser phase of the war, you know, with, you know, the Crimea thing looming and so forth. So the, you know, and, you know, we have this, you know, farcical position, or at least the, you know, the U.S. government does where, you know, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, <laughs> where everything <laughs> is just deferred to them as though they have like some kind of ultimate agency in the arrangement. And, you know, so if they're not saying, look, this is getting bad, so we have to like maybe rethink whether we want to continue the war, uh, then, yeah, maybe that sort of, that sort of, and if they, the, what seems to be the case in Ukraine, and you saw this with the Polish missile incident, they, they latch on to everything possible to bolster their argument for additional weapons provisions or even more high, le, uh, high grade weapons provisions. Uh, give, they want the greater latitude to do military offenses, et cetera. So that is always their MO. Um, and so to the extent that this humanitarian toll is significant enough, that's what it's going to be like marshaled toward, you know, advocating for, not actually, you know, remediating the suffering in the, in the short term. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe that's not, that's why you're not hearing about it quite so much. Or, or I don't know, because 
early on in the war, there, were, there was like nonstop 24-7 coverage of this, the humanitarian stuff. So, yeah, it's like, it's like talking about Ben Collins. It's like Zelensky is not putting the humanitarian concerns of Ukraine. It's like, yeah, I think that's clear. I think Ukraine wants to go as far as they can in the war. And yeah, I'm not, surpri- I'm not surprised by it, by that. Yeah, and um, so you, uh, you, that, that foreign policy uh, article that you sent me, there was this um, you know, foreign policy magazine had this little dispatch from this uh, Halifax security conference that happened this week. Apparently, Halifax, Canada, I didn't even, I'm not even sure I knew this, uh, has this like annual defense summit to like, make Canada feel important about being a big security player um, on the world stage. So, you know, the U.S. sends this... Yeah, bipartisan delegation. You know, they're they're touting it as the biggest one yet. Uh, I actually watched a couple of days ago some of this um, summit just because they you know they live streamed it and stuff. And yeah, I mean the whole point of it was to demonstrate on a bipartisan basis that look, everybody, nothing is fundamentally changing about U.S. policy in Ukraine. That was yeah, the point. I actually got the first two paragraphs of this article, but then I was paywalled. But I just I said it to you for that. Are you subscribed to foreign policy? Is it worth subscribing to? Um, no, I don't think I am. I usually figure out a way to circumvent the paywall with like incognito mode or cache, uh, Google yeah, cache or something. I probably should have done that. Yeah. So okay, you're. Uh, I might yeah. actually be subscribed to it. I forget because sometimes it annoys. It's a it annoys me. It's just expensive. It's like, yeah. it's like two fifty a year. I mean, that's. Oh yeah. Lot. Okay. Never forget it. I'm not. I don't, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not giving two hundred fifty dollars a year to the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, there's one for I've seen two fifty and I've seen one fifty. I don't know. Every time I go to the website, either it gives two fifty or one fifty. They might have some algorithm. You might be able to get it for one fifty, but that's still a lot. Uh, that's still uh, you know t- ten bucks. You know, yeah, bucks and there wasn't a whole lot new in that article that you could. I mean, I don't know if you if you if you care to, to sit through the to the live stream stuff. I only watched the uh, the stuff with the U.S. politicians, but uh, there's not a whole lot that was new in the article. I guess they got some anonymous yeah. quotes here and there, but, but the basic takeaway is. You know, look, you know, forget all the election rhetoric. That's just for show. Uh, basically, there's total continuity on a bipartisan basis, and we're just going to press ahead. You know, as I was trying to tell people, but you know, they, everybody gets so worked up into a lather over the uh, election, yeah. you know, the campaign so you, frenzy. So, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Uh, just going to go to a small, uh, you know. Nuclear family uh, gathering. I think actually, my my uh, my sister had a uh, had a baby like a month and a half ago or so, and I actually haven't seen the baby yet. So uh, I'm finally going to get to see the baby, which I guess is technically my niece. So yeah. that's um, technically no. Well, no, ofi- no, officially, officially. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. So you want to just you want to go to the calls and let these people. Uh, what are you doing? I think. What are you doing for it? Uh, I also have a nuclear family. It's just a uh, wife and kids. Uh, we, we don't, we decided we don't like Turkey. Uh, and so we're making prime rib. Uh, we've done that the last few years and yeah, we'll sit home with the kids. They don't get to spend, you know, I mean, I work from home so I get to spend some time with them, but like they're always, uh, you know, one's at school and one is with their nanny and I'm working a lot. I mean, a lot of hours. So, uh, yeah, just gonna take the opportunity to hang out with the family. You don't, you don't like Turkey. Like, at all, like eat prepared in any particular way, no, you still wouldn't like. It is an inferior kind of meat. It's not. I I sometimes like the deli slices. I mean, they're okay. They're not even as good as other kinds of deli meat. 
Uh, but like the Thanksgiving turkey that's cooked, the white meat, no, it, it's 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 terrible. I think every I think everyone knows that. That's why we only eat turkey when it's a tradition. Like it's not a popular it's not a popular kind of meat, right? You go to the restaurant, most dishes are chicken or pork or or steak. So yeah, I, we just stop torturing ourselves with turkey. <laughs> well. My go-to sandwich, if I get a sandwich, it's pretty much always a turkey sandwich. Not always, but often a turkey sandwich. So that's one thing in terms of lunch meat. But I don't know. I feel like if you uh, – maybe you just haven't had a Thanksgiving turkey prepared in the right way. Because, like, if, if it has the right seasoning, the right sauces, the right sides and stuff, yeah, it's not the thing I would necessarily seek out for an ordinary dinner all the time. But um, if it's put in front of me. I'll eat it whether it's Thanksgiving yeah. or not, especially if it has like the right skin sort of texture. Well, I mean, give, so. give you the right seasoning, the right sauces. Anything will be good, right? It's like, well, it's yeah, it, well, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. But why, not, why not take something that's good on its own, right? Take some ribs or chicken, something you would you would eat. I don't know. I'm just anti-turkey. I'm always disappointed with it. It's dry, right? Like, And it can't – it's like you, you cut it up at some point, and it's not just the um, seasoning. You get to the actual meat, um, right, so pour some gravy on it. I, this is you're just eating gravy. I mean, you're just eating cardboard with gravy. I mean, what's the? I'm sorry. I, I just I don't think we should. You know, I guess I'm not that temperamentally conservative. I, I you know, I think we can. I think we can. You know, recreate these traditions and do something else. <laughs> yeah, we'll have. Yeah, we'll have. We'll have ribs. Yeah. All right. Well, you're 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 autistic about turkey. Okay. Oh, let's go to. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's go to uh, callers. All right, Andrew. How's it going? Hey there. I just want to endorse Richard's choice of prime rib. This is what I'm doing as well. And uh, Thank you, smart man. I mean, you're just correct about it being an inferior meat in general, but that's, a, I guess, an argument for another day. Yeah, and even like the yeah the slices. I mean, sorry to keep going back. It's, but I, I made an exception for the slices and for like the sandwiches and stuff. But no, the actual turkey that's itself true. without the, any of that, no, nobody eats that at any point except for when we have to. I feel like I would lose this argument just because like there's a disparity in passion. Like Richard seems very passionate about it where my position really is not even – it's not so much even a pro-turkey position. It's just like I'm okay just being generically accepting yeah. a turkey place. Yeah, the standards are too low. I yeah. mean that's the thing. I think the standards are too low. There. My, my standards are low in every aspect for, of life. So. <laughs> uh, just Thanksgiving dinner. I mean it's fine for sandwiches. But, uh, yeah, so I wanted to actually call in about Ukraine, actually. And I think last time I said that it was going to get worse, and this is what I was talking about. And uh, when it comes to this energy crisis and the dropping temperatures, what do you think Europe in general is going to do about a refugee crisis, a potential refugee crisis of a million to maybe a couple million? I mean, it's definitely within the realm of possibility, right? What do you think? What do I think? Yeah, me. Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, they're not. Yeah, really yeah, you, Andrew. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll just put on my expert hat and then say that. Uh, I thought you were a senior fellow at a think tank. You should have a ready-made answer to this. Uh, you know, <laughs> I would like to take credit for that, but working in a think tank would probably cause my imminent suicide. So, uh, the the thing I think is that there's going to be absolute political upheaval if there's uh, an actual migration wave and that this is basically a weapon that Russia is using. Though I think that there are military purposes for striking uh, power facilities, even if it's just to light up the Ukrainian air defense grid and see where it is so that they can hit it. 
I mean, that's a legitimate military tactic. But I do think that they're potentially using, because if you think about it, Russia's fighting not just, obviously, Ukraine, but NATO, and they can't physically attack NATO, so how can they damage Europe? They could damage Europe by causing a refugee crisis, right? Yeah, yeah they can't do that. I, I would be surprised if it didn't have a, I mean, even the Ukrainians are telling, are sort of like encouraging people to leave. I mean, you see them reporting, I'm sure, that they, they just don't have the capacity, but... Yeah, I mean the question is, what is it? What will it matter? I mean, will it will it change the uh, trajectory yeah. of the war? And I, I, I frankly, I can't see it. Um, and so you know, it's like I think that they're going to just be you know, like they see these refugees floated, uh, you know, and they're going to say we don't want to support Ukraine anymore after Putin bombed their electrical grid. No, no way. I mean, if anything, it's going to harden. Right. I don't think I don't think it matters either way because I think they're going to keep supporting Ukraine no matter what. Uh, so, yeah, I think there will be a refugee crisis. Will it change sort of the uh, trajectory of the war? Yeah, very, very unlikely. Don't you think it would add to political instability? Well, uh, I was just going mean, to I was just going to say on that point, like the political instability thing. I mean, it's been predicted now for months that you know Europe is finally going to you know be at its wits end and it's going to have to deal with all this unrest being fomented over Ukraine. And, you know, clearly there have been economic ramifications to some degree throughout Europe or to even a significant degree in many respects. But I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm missing something or maybe I'm not attuned enough in Europe. I try to be. But I, I don't really see much sign yet that there really is any kind of sustained or especially significant political unrest in Europe as a result of like the deterioration in economic conditions. And you probably would have thought that there would have been some indications of that at this point. So I don't know. I guess I'm, I mean, anything's yeah. possible, but I just, I'm not sold on that being as inevitable Especially, as some I mean, people seem to think. The first countries they're going to go to are, like, Poland increased its population by some ridiculous amount, right? Like 10 or 15% or something at the start of yeah. the war. Especially these countries that are directly next to Ukraine, like Poland and, uh, I guess Poland is probably the main one. Uh, you know, these countries are not gonna, you know, are not gonna change, um, are not gonna change their, their views here. If you go to Germany, no way. I mean, Germany welcomed all these, you know, Syrians. They're, they're not gonna shut the door to Ukraine. So, no, I, I think that, you know, it's maybe Russia, I mean, it's a gamble for them, right? It's like, hopefully the economy will collapse. It just somehow won't work. I can, I can get why Russia is doing it because, like, who knows? Like, you're just introducing chaos. And if you introduce chaos and like, you know, maybe something can happen and then, you know, just the trajectory as it is, is probably, you know, they're not they're not doing great on the battlefield. I mean, they're either stagnant or they're losing territory. Um, so it's like you have to try to change the political situation because the, the battlefield is too right. difficult. This is the one thing they can do to hurt Ukraine. And so who knows? Like, who, I think they're just rolling the dice, but I, I doubt it's going to work. And remember early on in the war when, when there was the first wave of... Exodus out of um, Ukraine, mostly into Poland, but also, you know, Bulgaria and other places. You saw a theory going around that, oh, eventually at some point there's going to be a backlash to this mass transfer of Ukraine displaced people into Europe. Like, so at some point people are going to, you know, be. Uh, stressed by the demand on like state services, or there's going to be other, you know, you know, uh, there's going to be sort of consternation over the influx in terms of uh, just housing or so forth. And I don't know. I mean, again, maybe I've missed it. I'm not aware of any significant backlash that has ever happened 
since people were projecting that that was a possibility. I don't know. I, f- I feel like there's um, there's kind of just a acceptance of kind of status quo policy, even uh, also in, in Europe. You know, the president of Germany, so not the prime minister, um, or not the chancellor, rather, but like the more ceremonial role, the president, um, which is, it's an elected position, but he gave a really... Um, striking speech maybe a month or two ago um, on the Ukraine situation because he had I forget the, I forget his name now but he had gone to Ukraine for the first time uh, maybe it was, this was in October and he comes back and gives this speech at the the, the German Parliament um, where he's basically saying that you know. Times are. We have to just accept that Germany now is not going to be in boom times anymore, as it has been, you know, since reunification. This is basically we're basically in a war. We're basically reverting to like a wartime sacrifice, collective responsibility thing for Ukraine. But it's it's that significant that we can't allow our resolve to to waver, and we have to just accept the pain, and you know, you know, make the most of it, and find like even the virtue in it. And it was like. I don't know it's it it was a it was striking just coming from a senior German official that you know they were speaking in such terms of, in terms of what was going to be required of the German people, and I don't I, I don't know I don't see I haven't seen I don't I don't speak German but I haven't seen much of a backlash to that or really much that would suggest that upheaval of any real significant sort could be imminent. But again, maybe I'm I'm missing something. I, I yeah, like I mean, it's almost as if all those liberals who say. Uh, uh, the um, you know the attitudes towards refugees is determined by the race and the religion and the background of the refugees. It's almost like they're they're right. I mean, there is you compare it to the backlash to the Syrian refugees. It's just it's just not there. And I think this is this is a you know this is a reality of the situation. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just uh, don't know if it's sustainable indefinitely or at what point. It seems like. Um, the most direct contact they would have with the conflict. But I get what you're saying. I understand what you're both arguing. Yeah, I also think there's um, another factor that actually occurred to me, I think today, because I don't know if you saw this, but the, the there was an AP reporter. He might have actually been a stranger. I think, he, I think he was a poor reporter who, when the Polish mi- missiles incident happened, the AP put out this, you know, quick report that was the most like incendiary thing that you could have done at that t- mo- that moment, where there was an anonymous source, anonymous U.S. intelligence source, who's basically leaked to AP that Russia fired missiles at Poland, um, or was a Russian missile that struck Poland, or like it was it was the kind of report that seemed like it was going to potentially bring about some kind of real you know worrying escalation. And uh, the AP fired that reporter, I think, two days ago. And it's still sort of strange what actually happened there. Um, because there were editors involved who weren't apparently fired. They might have scapegoated this particular reporter. So whatever actually happened um, behind the scenes there, we don't know. But, but one factor that occurred to me as to why that story might have transpired in the way that it did is because the the media in the U.S. and also probably across Europe um, or across the whole, quote, West, which is putting up this, you know, historic unified front with Ukraine, they haven't been, they've primed, they've been primed to not look at the war from any kind of real 
adversarial or skeptical perspective as relates to U.S. policy or German policy or EU policy, except when there are occasions where they have to lobby for the policy to be even more aggressive, right? So if you're if you get a, if this guy gets a leak from the uh, from some intelligence official, and maybe there's it's like dubiously sourced or it's not to the standard as would be typical for an AP story of that of that magnitude, I just think that it seems plausible to me that they're just kind of in a mindset where like they're not looking at this the, the, the way they would have looked at Iraq, the Iraq War with Bush, right? Where there's sort of like this obligation to be real skeptical as you know, at least as the war drags on and hold the uh, decision makers feet to the fire yeah. and who knows? really make like, sure that you're doing knows? due diligence. I mean, who knows? This could have been one reporter making it up, trying to get ahead. It could have been one, you know, he could have, I, I don't know, it's interesting. Either the reporter made it up or somebody misled him or like didn't know what he's, you could imagine, like if I was going to guess, this is just out of, you know, just sort of in the dark, but like something that really makes sense to me. Some U.S. official wants this guy to think that he's like an important source. And so he just, you know, says, he just says this thing that he thinks is true, but it's based on nothing. And the guy runs with it, right? It could be something like that. I, I don't know. It's like this stuff happens. I mean, it's encouraging that they fired him. I mean, that was like, how often does that happen, right? They just get they just get this thing wrong, and then the guy is just gone. I mean, at least, you know, some self-correcting mechanism there. Yeah, I guess, you know, but whatever did happen, I do still, still think it is the case that... Like the media, broadly speaking, is has sort of been habituated into this mindset where it's almost seen as uncouth or even unethical to be too adversarial toward U.S. policy on Ukraine. So that could could inform. Maybe it didn't didn't did in this case, or it didn't. Sort of a, a bit more of a um, you know a uh, soft added, soft posture toward official claims on Ukraine because they haven't been in a habit of treating these claims skeptically from the beginning. So there's sort of like a momentum to that whole sort of uh, accommodationist mentality that seems to be prevailing. But maybe I'm just spouting off about something and I'm totally off. Who knows? All right. Um, I, uh, one, one last Yeah, yeah, go quick. ahead. Did you guys hear that the apparently the president of Poland got prank called by these two guys? Pretending no, to be Macron. No, I saw I saw those guys. Those the same guys who did George W. Bush pretending to be uh, Zelensky. Yeah, it's like Volva or something, and someone else. They're Russians, and it makes me wonder if they're like connected somehow with like state intelligence. I'm like, how the fuck did they get on the the line with the president of Poland pretending to be Macron? And then the secondly, the guy's accent is like a broken English Russian accent. So I don't understand how this guy thought it was Macron. But it's fun. They got, they got, they got, they got Ben Wallace at one point too, the defense uh, minister yes. or the defense secretary of the UK. How is this happening? I, I don't know. <laughs> Do you yeah. tell me? I, don't I mean, know. it, it wouldn't close. be. It seems. Yeah. I mean, actually, I, I hadn't thought of that, but that seems plausible that they could be some, you know, intelligence cutout type operation. Sometimes I don't know. That's just like an off the wall thought, but it's like when you're reaching the president of Poland and you're posing as Macron. Uh, anyway, since you didn't hear it, I'll really briefly mention you can move on. Cause I know you got Gator, the uh, president of Poland and talking to Macron ostensibly privately, uh, he thought was uh, privately was uh, he basically said he didn't want to go to war with Russia and he was being very careful and basically just reassuring uh, Macron, quote unquote, that he wasn't going to, you know, do anything 
hastily and he's being very cautious because he's aware of what Zelensky wants and uh, he's like does not want a war with Russia and like do you think Poland wants a war of course not so that's at least good to hear yeah you know I, I do think um, I do think that, that that's useful to hear not because it's like should be super reassuring as to Poland's intent or Duda's intent although I guess that is a factor but um I guess it just underscores that you know, most. I don't think most of the world leaders, you know, Biden, Duda, Schultz, Macron. I don't think these people. They're like, like utterly psychotic enough that they would consciously desire war, World War Three, or like nuclear annihilation. Like that's not going to be probably the conscious motive right. that they have in their head. And yet they're still presiding over sort of like a policy framework that is ineluctably kind of trending in that direction. Well, that speaks to the whole thing, doesn't it? It seems like everyone thinks that they just know where the red lines are and that they're going to be as belligerent as they can inside of those parameters. And let's just hope we don't hit a bump in the road because somehow this is all worth it over Ukraine, right? I mean, that's basically the operating premise we're working under, that we're so confident in our systems, like when the, the, the missile hit Poland and we didn't retaliate because we knew what happened and we had patience. So we just have so much faith in the system that we can ride out this crisis until it's over, which is apparently no one has a fucking clue when that's going to be. It could be five years, could be one year. And we're just going to keep riding the red line and hope there's no bump in the road. Like, it, it, isn't that pretty much where we're at? Yeah. Well, speaking of red lines, I, I don't know, Richard, if you um, saw this or, or Andrew, um, but when Biden had that meeting with President Xi at wherever that was, the summit or of some kind, and I think it was Indonesia or wherever, um, the Chinese readout of that meeting was much more informative than the American one. And basically what was conveyed pretty directly was that one of the purposes of that meeting from the standpoint of China was to communicate to the U.S., I guess in maybe as stark of terms as they have so far, what their, what their meaning China's, quote, red lines are on Taiwan. Now, and they, and that, phrase red line was used um, by I think it was the foreign minister or something in describing that meeting. Um, And I don't know if you remember this, but Biden had a summit type meeting with Putin in June of 2021. It was the first time they had met since Biden entered office. And one of the purposes of that summit from the standpoint of Russia was to communicate to Biden, what Russia's red lines were on Ukraine, okay? And one of the red lines was, you know, basically uh, NATO and the, uh, the admission of Ukraine to NATO, but not even exactly formal admission, but, you know, increased militarization such that NATO admission was going to become an inevitability. That was a red line. And so I don't know, maybe I'm over-interpreting it, but there does seem to be a potentially ominous parallel there in that these like precursor summit meetings are being were being are seem to have been used for roughly the same and purpose. And what is the red line? Conveying these red lines. What did they say it was for for Taiwan? Yeah, you said they said that. Um, well, I mean, we don't have like a transcript, right? I mean, so I don't know exactly how it was articulated. Just that the red line 
criteria was articulated. That's what was claimed for the meeting. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not 100% sure what precisely it was as it relates to Taiwan, but that just that it was communicated. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Richard, but definitely uh, it seems very similar to me. I mean, the red line would – I don't know how we would consistently arm Taiwan or whatever, but the red line obviously seems to be declare, declaration of independence. Yeah, but, although a lot of people have been saying uh, out, of, out of the conference that China was sort of uh, being more conciliatory than it had been in the past. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know from which direction this is going. Yep. All well, right. Thank you well, for your time and have a happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Yep. You too. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Gator. Gator or Gator? Hey, Jens. How you doing? Gator. Well, I mean, you could be. Uh, well, if he's if he's from Florida, it's Gator. If he's somewhere else, it's Gator. French Gator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey guys, how you doing? Good. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering about the um, kind of uh, the recent missile event. Um, I just was curious about your your take on the sort of journalistic MO initially, because the way I look at it, the speed with which the first reports came out, which were Zelensky's statement that it was definitely uh, Russian Russian missiles, Russian work, and demanding an action. The British papers were out within six hours, Times, Telegraph maybe, Mail, possibly The Guardian, Scum as well, were literally saying with fervour, Russia did it, um, where basically it's very unlikely that the news cycle is going to be able to get absolute confirmation, reliable confirmation, then that speed, right? And um, this is exactly the same MO as what happened, and even the same rate of, of print as, as the MH17 shoot down, which when you actually read the reports and we'll go into that, is, is dodgy as hell, right? That the, 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 um, the verdict on MH17 is not kosher. Now, as as a journalist, Michael, and also Richard, as, as you know, an academic analyst, does that not does this rate of process or rate of publication and rate of accusation does that not immediately cause a red flag for you? Am I or am I being unreal, unreasonable in my contemptuous suspicion? Well, here's what I think happened. Here's what I'm almost certain happened. These reports that you're you're referencing from you know the Times, maybe the Guardian, you know the Mail, et cetera, the British outlets. I'm almost positive that those were all purely based on the AP report because remember the AP is this you know the world's most influential and you know ubiquitous wire service. I mean they it's a feeder into all these publications where like the Guardian has arrangements with the AP to run AP articles right and ha have it as their wire service. Um, so. I could be wrong, but I'm very, I'm, I'm pretty confident that all those outlets in the UK that you mentioned were just kind of you know, aggregating the AP story, which is why the AP story itself is so consequential. Because it's not, it's not just that the AP publishes it on its website or tweets it, right? No, it goes out everywhere. And mm -hmm. um, if there's even if there's a correction, because it's like this, the AP stories get automatically aggregated and published all over the place like the, it's it's outside the ap's control at that point because then it's like within the editorial like purview of the individual publications to like make adjustments if there's some issue that needs to be corrected right so that's why it's pretty seismic uh, when it, a story like that comes out of the ap in particular um so i guess the way i would think about it is 
it comes down to the AP really more so than those other publications. Although there probably still should be individual discretion exercised by these other publications that are running AP stories when there is a a apparent news development of such magnitude, especially if you read the sourcing that's given, and it's just like one random. Yeah, and it's like sort of imprecise in how it's worded. It seems to be, be, be one official. You know that it could have enormous ramifications. So it's not like they're obliged to run every little AP, um, you know, uh, breaking news item that comes across the wire. Uh, so, yeah, but um, so I think there are problems there ethically uh, in terms of how that was handled. But I don't think it, re- it relates to the like rapidity of the this kind of like simultaneous promulgation of the story because it wasn't all done like independently right it was it was from this one sort of nerve center of the ap that then just gets blasted out everywhere uh, okay what about zelensky being this uh, you know hawkish mouthpiece to put it nicely but flat out liar to potentially put it at the other end of the extreme yeah i mean we we talked about this a little bit last week i'm, I'm still not really Certain about it. I don't know about you, Richard, but like uh, it, it wasn't only Zelensky. Remember, it was you know the defense minister of Ukraine. It was the top advisor. That, you know, that guy Yermak. Yeah, and, and the polls you know, jumped uh, on it as well, didn't they? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure if they did or not. I just know that you know the basically the upper echelons of the Ukraine government, up to and including um, Zelensky, they all stated as a matter of fact that they somehow knew that it was a deliberate attack by Russia on Poland, right? So, of course, those tweets or statements elsewhere are also going to get aggregated into those sort of instantaneous knee-jerk articles and sort of fuel the narrative as though there's some kind of like corroboration for that AP leak. And so it would be nice to know, I mean, the smoking gun probably would be whatever went on with that AP leak, because who knows, maybe it had something to do with... I mean, total speculation, but you know, you, you wouldn't rule out you know Ukraine like having some role, in maybe engineering that. I'm not saying that that happened, right? But it's you know well, possible. Well, the, That's why you would want to know what happened. Yeah, well, I've just shoved in. I mean, a link to to Zero Hedge, um, who have, but they're not the only they're not the only people who've got this. There's now um, an internal AP Slack uh, chat with Laporta and his upper editors, and basically it shows that Laporta had said, "I'm just passing on a tip." From this one source has been rated by Ron Nixon, the uh, one of the vi- the VPs at a- AP um, for investigative, and um, apparently saying that this is a Russian missile. Um, these are Russian missile strikes, right? Two dead, but he confirms it's only one source, and then the upper editors are then in Slack saying, "Can we run this?" And essentially, Laporta says it was way above my pay grade, and they say, "Can you give us immediate?" Um, the base of his superiors are starting to say, let's go with it. And they literally, one of them says, because I can't imagine one US military official source getting this wrong. That's yeah, that yeah, yeah. you'll see yeah, on the link, right? And so essentially, this article is saying, or this, this line is saying, Laporta has done nothing wrong. He's, he's been fired incorrectly, but he's also been warned by AP to not discuss it at all. So there's more to there's more to what AP have decided to do there. Yeah, yeah which is why I'm not ruling out. Sorry, I'm not ruling out. Again, this is total speculation. And sure, but I'm not ruling out that maybe Russia did do it, and there actually was an attempt to kind of I don't know, 
cover that up or or not allow it to spiral and and so maybe that in other words maybe that intelligence source is right i don't know it's just one of many potential possibilities yeah i Rich think is, we, yeah i think we're regardless of what happened i think the interesting sort of uh lesson is that <clears throat> ukraine wants to draw us into a war and we'll say yeah whatever it takes and then Biden is not looking. If they wanted an opportunity, if the West wanted an opportunity to escalate, they had it, right? They get it. Well, they didn't do it. So I think we sort of know where where each side is. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 hoping that you know it does show kind of what Ritter says, which is essentially by his analysis, he's saying that the physics and the trajectory of this sort of kit, none of this is feasible, and therefore the big boys in the room, the adults in the room actually did step in and say, like, right, right, children, just pipe down, sit down and shut the fuck up. Well, right? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard to, I mean, like, it's like 12 miles within Ukraine, uh, Poland or something. I'm not, I don't know. The, I don't know the, you know, I don't know the physics of this, but it seems right that that seems strange that it would send it that far. I have no idea if this is like physically possible, but if, if it was Russia, could, could Russia accidentally do this? I mean, I don't know. That's hard to explain too. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and also I'll stick like, a link in for, for Ritter for Ritter's explanation because he does it nicely and he, it's quite lay understandable. Essentially, he's saying these kind of missiles they they cannot they cannot switch trajectory in the way that they did. It is simply not possible, basically. And um, and he does claim to have, have direct full experience of the the nature of that weaponry. So yeah, he's not the only guy who says that as well. So. So is he is he then is he then saying that the likelier explanation is that Russia actually did no fire the the, the Russia the Russia did not fire weapons okay into yeah yeah Poland. okay right yeah. right right got it yeah okay. yeah um, okay but the other thing is as well just on the military sort of outcome here right um, I mean obviously there's the, people like Ritter McGregor and Baletic have basically always been fairly consistent in their argument about the war type particularly now that it's switched to kind of a war of attrition. And although Richard sort of seems sort of a bit more allied to the typical, you know, the more conventional Western narrative about like Russia's not doing very well. If you look at these other guys analysis, essentially, that's not the case because it's not about territory anymore. They're arguing this is a war of attrition. So one of the things that they point out is that even though Russia's drawn to this natural line sort of the river and the and the current front position, the cost to Ukraine of making that advance to pick up that land is ridiculously high. Even the New York Times was reporting around August, September, that when Russia made that so-called counteroffensive, it was literally costing them a five to one man ratio to, to, to Russians because they were advancing across open ground and Russians were just wasting them with... Um, artillery fire as they took that ground for example and that's the, the nyt were running quotes for um wounded soldiers who were being directly quoted as saying that you know ukrainians were say, were reporting that in the nyt right and so their argument is ultimately territory has nothing to do with this this is about the grind of manpower down and down and down and then the onlining of the cons you know the the, the mobilization and then you're going to see something else and i'm just i'm just wondering if uh the way i kind of anticipate this and have done is that even if russia can ultimately drive ukraine into uh negotiated settlement then what's going to end up happening is you're going to end potentially end up with 
the the unoccupied part of of western central and western Ukraine being so poor because I think 95% of the GDP is in the Russian occupied section now particularly because of all of the frackable shale gas under DPR that what you're going to get get is this festering pit of poverty in that part of Russia of, of Ukraine which will be a breeding ground for sort of the right wing extremism that will that but that could also be exploited to drive a constant insurgency back into the Russian occupied territory right and i think that if that's the case with all of the loose weaponry this will not end for 10 years yeah well at least you know for uh, go ahead rich oh uh, well i mean i i don't doubt that russia i don't doubt that russia is um or ukraine is uh suffering a great deal I mean, unquestionably, that's true. I mean, is it about land or is it not about land? I don't know. They seem to be fighting over. They seem to be fighting over land. I mean, having land seems to, you know, seems, seems to be what this, all, this whole thing is about at the end. Um, and so, didn't they annex some territories supposedly? Well, yeah, and then they lost it. I mean, they annexed Kherson and then lost the, you right. know, the city. Uh, so it's you know, it's like uh, you know, to say that like Russia annexes its land and then it loses the land and it doesn't matter. I mean, it must matter. I mean, the, you know, that's the one indication we have which way the lines are are moving. Um, so I don't doubt like Ukraine t- takes all I mean the fact that Ukraine can take so many more casualties than Russia I mean is maybe an indication that Ukraine has a lot more resolve that Russia is not willing you know Ukraine did has done uh urban combat like for Mariupol they hung out they held out a, a really long time Russia hasn't done that Russia's retreated um when Ukraine has been advancing um so yeah I mean unquestionably Ukraine is willing to suffer and it's suffering a lot that I don't think this is good for Ukraine and I I buy that it's going to be in a state of poverty for a very long time. All of that makes sense. Um it can all that can be true and it can still it can still advance in the war. Yeah, you know, I tend to be agnostic myself about these sort of like interpretive analyses of battlefield developments, you know, is Russia actually winning or losing, is Ukraine winning or losing because it I mean these the information you can get that bears on that interpretive analysis is always so obscured and there's always such contradictory stuff coming out and like you can apply like a radically different sort of like lens to even just do the interpretation so if like you're maybe you know just to oversimplify like more pro russia then there's like always a positive spin that can be put on developments that maybe seem to the mainstream to be bad for russia and you know vice versa so i don't know it's like very hard to really like using what i would consider to be like typical like journalistic or empirical standards like there's no way to like even verify or falsify or uh those sorts of claims it's all, it's like a lot of just speculative mumbo jumbo ultimately so i i've always just been kind of agnostic uh, in terms of how i see that but i i will say that you know when you're telling me what those guys like ritter and so forth um say that i mean It seems like it's always possible to just like pivot back between a different interpretation to pivot between different interpretations of the war's trajectory, right? So if Russia has to withdraw from the key uh cities or something, then suddenly it's just a war of attrition. It's not about territory anymore. And you know, then when Russia does advance, maybe it is about territory again. And so it's kind of just always contingent mm-hmm. and I, and you know and you would see the I same mean, sort I'm, of I'm you see the same sort of analysis, isn't it? Yeah, and you could see like you could imagine like you pro Ukraine analysts kind of using the same approach, right? That just 
basically just uh, post hoc fitting battlefield developments into sort of a framework that is most uh, felicitous for you know the side that they're actively rooting for and want to prevail, right? So, yeah, um, yeah that's, that's why I'm I'm wary of you know putting too much stock into any of these like rival kind of modes of analysis. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Gator. I guess we're not going to wish you a happy Thanksgiving because that's not that, that's not allowed where you're from. So you'll have to just yeah. Well, well, you know, I might I, 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 I might I might I might seek out some sympathetic inferior meat just you know <laughs> yeah. torture yourself What's to, to experience that pain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, sing sing a patriotic song while you're doing it because I you want, <laughs> should remind you of the majesty of America. All right, everybody. Well, thanks uh, for tuning in. Thanks, Richard. And uh, I guess I'll give the generic uh, salutation to enjoy your stupid little holiday. <laughs> Just say Happy Thanksgiving. And I can't. I can't. I, I'm too. I'm. I'm too screwed up in the head. <laughs> All right. Good night, everyone. Right, bye bye.